And if you're having an issue as far as funding or not being able to get supplemental or your spouse, you know, is no longer working or, or whatever, there has to be some route for the patient to be able to take to help with those expenses and, and to have that coverage. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. Thanks to a law that was passed in 2001, everyone diagnosed with ALS automatically qualifies for Medicare, regardless of their age. But that doesn't translate to easy. According to results from a 2021 ALS focus survey, navigating health insurance creates significant stress for people living with ALS. And as anyone who has tried can likely attest, naving Medicare is no picnic. Trying to figure out your Part A from your Parts B, C, and D. Determining whether you're going to opt for traditional Medicare or Medicare Advantage. And for folks who go with original Medicare, now comes the decision whether to purchase supplemental insurance policy, which is commonly referred to as Medigap. Joining me this week to help make sense of all of this is Kara Nett Hinckley, Vice President of State Policy at the ALS Association. Kara, thanks for being with us this week. Thanks so much for having me, Jeremy. Yeah, excited to have you on. And you, you know, you're relatively new to the public policy team at the association and a first-time guest on Connecting ALS. So we are thrilled to have you. For folks listening at home who are trying to figure all of this out, though, let's dive right in and try to understand what a Medigap policy is and why it might be necessary. Sure. So broadly speaking, Medicare is a federal program that provides health insurance for people age 65 or older. Medigap refers to Medicare supplemental plans sold by private insurers that aim to fill in the gap between original Medicare for the eligible enrollees living with high cost conditions like ALS. So original Medicare is, is fine for most enrollees, but it is insufficient for those with high cost medical needs who must contend with both devastating illness and the prospect of leaving behind crushing medical debt. So specifically, original Medicare requires enrollees to meet an annual Part B deductible and then 20% of the Medicare approved amount for each service with no annual limit on those out-of-pocket costs. And that's where Medigap really comes in to help those living with ALS. And it, it covers that 20% of, of out-of-pocket spend. I mentioned earlier, Kara, that you are helping run the state policy shop for the association. Now, you just mentioned that Medicare is a federal program, but that doesn't mean the states don't have something to say about who can access Medigap policies. That's right, Jeremy. So federal law does not require insurance companies to sell Medigap to people under 65. So this presents a significant financial challenge to many families, since most people who develop ALS are diagnosed in their prime working years between the ages of 40 through 70, with the average age being 55 at the time of diagnosis. So under current law in many states, individuals under 65 who are living with ALS aren't able to buy the Medigap coverage they need at a price they can afford due to the absence of state policies that provide guarantee issue and premium price protections. So, you know, states have the flexibility and really, honestly, the responsibility to institute consumer protections for Medigap that go beyond the minimum federal standards. For example, 28 states require Medigap insurers to issue policies 
to eligible Medicare beneficiaries whose employers have changed their retiree health coverage benefits. You know, due to this patchwork of protections as defined by state lines, really, you can imagine the great variation in beneficiaries being able to take advantage of Medigap plans. As, you know, as an example, the share of beneficiaries in Medigap varies from, you know, 3% in Hawaii to 51% in Kansas. We don't really think that your area code should dictate your health access. So, Kara, thinking about the map, what's the breakdown in terms of where Medigap plans are currently not required to be offered to people under the age of 65? Good question. Medigap plans are not required to be sold to people under 65 in Alabama, Arkansas, Arizona, Indiana, Iowa, Nebraska, Nevada, New Mexico, North Dakota, Ohio, Rhode Island, South Carolina, Utah, Virginia, Washington, West Virginia, or Wyoming. So I know that was a lot, but I think that really like supports the need for for us to be advocating for for these state policies to be implemented because thinking of a large number of of states that, you know, because folks are in one state and not on the other side of a state line, they can't access the plans they need. So while 33 states do require insurers to offer at least one Medigap plan to those under 65 with Medicare, that doesn't make those plans affordable and therefore attainable. So just because you're not on that list doesn't mean that, you know, I think of a state like Kentucky, for example, where it's not on the list because they do require at least one plan to be sold to those under 65. It doesn't mean mean it's attainable or affordable. The ALS Association supports that all states require Medicare supplemental insurance plan providers to cover individuals under 65 years of age who are eligible for Medicare by reason of disability with those premium price protections included. Ideally, a community rating pricing structure so that those under 65 don't have to pay more than those over 65, regardless of health condition. Yeah, so it's not regardless of health condition, but also increasingly regardless of where you live, making sure that you have access to the health care plans that you need. Now, Medigap and access to insurance, regardless of where you live, is not the only thing on your to-do list. So what are some of the other state policies that you see on the horizon? Yeah, absolutely. So the ALS Association, you know, we're at the forefront of state public policy. We're working to improve the lives of people living with ALS and their caregivers, Our state advocacy work really focuses on amplifying the voices of people living with ALS to educate and mobilize all policymakers in a nonpartisan fashion to achieve the mission of the ALS Association, which is really three-part, to find new treatments and cures, to optimize current treatments and care, and to prevent or delay the harms of ALS. So we're we're really hyper-focused on advancing state policies in alignment with those three pillars. So the the first pillar, finding new treatments and cures, at the state level, we're advocating for new or increased state funding for ALS research. To the second pillar, optimizing current treatments and care, we're really focused on new or increased state funding for ALS clinics and care services, on increasing access to telehealth services. You know, we've taken a lot of things away from the COVID-19 pandemic. And one of them is is a realization that, you know, we can and should invest much more heavily in telehealth services across the board, especially ensuring that our rural friends are able to, to access high quality care in a way that works best for them. 
Also ensuring access to biomarker testing and protecting against discrimination from testing. So to date, there are no biomarkers for ALS. However, a great amount of research is being done in this area. So there will be biomarkers identified for ALS in the future. So making sure states have policies on the books to ensure access to this testing, while also protecting against any discrimination related to that testing is incredibly important for those living with ALS. We're also looking at getting rid of state sales taxes on durable medical equipment. Mm. I think that one sort of speaks for itself. Sure. The third pillar, preventing or delaying the harms of ALS. As we've talked about, the Medigap piece is one of the highest priorities in this area. In addition, um, we are looking at genetic testing protection acts. So protecting individuals from discrimination based on their genetic information and also prohibiting the practice of setting higher premiums based on genetic information. We're also looking at ensuring that co-pays for the cost of drugs fully benefit people living with ALS. So you may hear of those being referred to as copay accumulator adjustment bans. So many insurers have disallowed copay assistance from counting toward a patient's annual deductible or out-of-pocket maximum. As a result, people living with ALS can face unexpected costs of you know, thousands of dollars to get the medicine they need. We're also looking at supporting the expansion of Medicaid. I think South Dakota is a really good example of this. Also reforming the prior authorization process, administrative burdens like prior authorization, delay access to care for people living with ALS. Also combating the use of fail-first policies. So oftentimes insurers use fail-first policies, also known as step therapy, that require patients to fail on the insurer's preferred drug or drugs before a patient can take the drug originally prescribed. People living with ALS should have barrier-free access to the medicine as prescribed by their providers. Kara, it sounds like you have your work cut out for you, and uh, not just on this, but but other issues. So hopefully we can have you back to start talking about some of the other things on your to-do list and start celebrating some of your wins. Yeah, I would, I would love that. I'm always looking for different avenues to talk state policy, to figure out better, quicker, smarter ways to make the changes we need to improve the lives of those living with ALS, their loved ones, and their care providers more broadly, as well as to find a cure for this disease. So thank you again for having me, Jeremy. For a look at one of the battles happening on the ground, I recently sat down with Patricia Peake, a care service director for the ALS Association based out of Louisville, Kentucky. Why don't you take a moment and introduce yourself to listeners and tell us a little bit about your connection to ALS. Hi, I'm Patricia Peake. I'm care services director for the ALS Association in Kentucky. I've been with the chapter for 16 years, so been around quite a while. The reason I actually got involved with ALS was my cousin was diagnosed in 2004 at the age of 39 with ALS. She had three kids, two that were in high school and one that was still in grade school. I had a fabulous husband who, you know, who took care of her. My family and I, you know, started going to the support group meetings and to the walks and all of that to get, you know, more involved with ALS. And then as time turned, they were looking for a person in the care services position and I was working for home health at the time and I thought, well, you know, might as well give it a shot. I've got a lot of knowledge from home health and a lot of connections in the Louisville area because that's, that's where I'm from uh, is Louisville. And we'll just see how it goes. And 16 years later, I'm still here. So I guess it's been going pretty well. Well, and I'm sure that there are, are many lives you've touched along the way that are grateful for those 16 years that you've put into the cause. You've been with the association for 16 years. You'd spent some time in home health before that in your career. 
How has it changed and what needs to change going forward so that access to home health is universal uh, and it, it covers all the needs that it can? Well, back when I was in home health, back in the early 80s and that, home health did cover a lot. You know, they would cover home health aides coming into a family, you know, sometimes five and six, seven days a week, which was good. You know, uh, a nurse could go out there for a length of time. But once Medicare and I, and I guess probably the home health agencies, they developed the OASIS program where they have to go in and they determine at the visit how many visits they're going to have for a uh, plan of care and that type of thing. Things changed. You know, and you, you don't see agencies with a whole lot of home health aides or CNAs like you had back in the day, because for one thing, they're not going to get reimbursed for that. You know, and, and, and especially now since COVID, people don't want to work. So you're not going to, you're the, 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 you know, being able to have home health aides, you know, on an ongoing basis and that type of thing is just something that's not going to happen. What I see personally from the system is that there are not enough home health aides working for the specific home health agencies in order to provide that type of care for patients, which is very sad because, you know, the caregivers get worn out. You know, the caregiver needs help with caregiving, with, you know, the bathing and that type of thing, and they can't get it. You know, and that's, that's a very sad, you know, situation. I would love to see where home health agencies could cover all that, where they could go in and do the, you know, the caring of the patient, go in and give them a bath, you know, every day or every other day or whatever needs to be done. You know, maybe not necessarily be able to go in there for, a, for you know, a half a day or, or for eight hours a day, but at least to give the caregiver, you know, help with their personal needs and what needs to be done. I hope that that'll change sometime down the road, but economically, I, I really don't see that happening. I really don't. Yeah, it's unfortunate to hear that note of pessimism, but I, I think you're right. And, you know, you touch on a good point, the respite care, the caregiver support aspect of home health, uh, certainly not something to be overlooked. One of the things that we wanted to talk to you a little bit about today was Medicare and, uh, you know, so many people living with ALS are accessing healthcare through the Medicare system, um, right. utilizing Medicare um, supplemental insurance when, when that's available. What was your family's experience like trying to navigate the Medicare system? Well, Celeste was lucky uh, because her husband worked and she was on his insurance. So as far as, you know, having issues with supplemental insurance and that type of thing, she was pretty lucky in that regard. She she had Medicare, but then then her husband's insurance would help with with other issues and and that type of thing. But we've got so many patients th these days, especially men who've been diagnosed with ALS, that they're you know the family's on their insurance or they, they have their own insurance, and then when they're under sixty five, and they they get Medicare benefits, but there's no supplemental to go along with that. That can be a big problem, especially if you know he was the main breadwinner in the family. And now, because of his illness, he's had to go on Medicare and, you know, and there may not be, again, like I said, a supplemental available to him. We've seen that with a lot of our patients and seeing that patients sometimes won't get a piece of equipment that they may need because they may not be able to afford, you know, the deductible or, or the monthly copay on a trilogy or a suction machine or something like that, even a hospital bed. You know, it just depends on what the cost is and where they are financially. And, you know, a lot of our patients just can't afford it. I mean, we know, we all know that this is a very expensive disease. Unfortunately, in, in some situations, the expense is almost a bigger trauma to the family than than the actual disease because of things that they may need that they could use that they're that they're unable to get. 
One of the things that we learned from the uh, ALS Focus survey questionnaires that went out, and the data came back from that, suggested that trying to figure out and navigate insurance is a major stressor for people living with ALS. And look, it's it's a stressor for, for me, it's a stressor for lots of folks, but certainly a stressor for people living with ALS in the community that we serve. Walk us through a little bit about, we, we talk about supplemental Medicare insurance, and it's not something I think that people intuitively understand. So what are we talking about when we're saying supplemental insurance? I, you know, they know the term Medigap gets tossed around a little bit. Um, walk me through that process and how those pieces all come together. Well, I can speak to it personally because my husband turned 65 and he retired. So he went on to Medicare. And then, you know, everybody's like, oh, great, I'm on Medicare. They're going to cover everything. Well, that's not a get, That's not true. You know, you, you get your Medicare, then, you know, your Part B comes out of your Social Security check. Then you have to find a supplemental insurance to take care of the 20% that Medicare is not going to cover, you know, whether you go to the doctor or hospital or whatever's going on. So you have to get a, a, a supplemental insurance to go along with that. And then you also have to, you know, get on the uh, prescription drug plan. So, I mean, you know, just by being on Medicare is not easy. You've got to work and find, you know, what the best policy for you is going to be as far as your medicines and your deductibles and coinsurance and that type of thing. So it can be traumatic at times, especially, you know, when you're looking at prices, that you're going to be paying for those things. And uh, uh, again, you know, with the cost of this disease in itself, it's, it's, it's very, it's enlightening to find out what things are going to cost. Uh, and the thing with patients that are under 65 that do get Medicare, most of the time they don't qualify because of their age for supplemental insurance. And that's where the Medigap program would come in for our Kentucky patients is that, they, that it would allow them to have Medicare and then, you know, belong to the Medigap program. And uh, to me, that's a no brainer. I mean, you know, that's what we need to do. I mean, many years ago, ALS was considered a compassionate care allowance. And so they, you know, now they are automatically qualified for Medicare. And if you're having an issue as far as funding or not being able to get supplemental or your spouse, you know, is no longer working or, or whatever, there has to be some route for the patient to be able to take to help with those expenses and, and to have that coverage. From your perspective, having navigated the system um, from many different perspectives and, and, and going through it yourself now, what needs done? What, from your perspective, needs done to make the system work better for patients, for people living with ALS, for, for people who need access to, to, to Medicare and, and supplemental insurance? Well, uh, just from a personal standpoint, I think it, it needs to be easier, easier for the patients and their families to have to do that because they're dealing with enough right now than have to worry about, you know, insurance and how to apply and what to do and what they need and that type of thing. So I think it needs to be made easier for those people. And it needs to take into effect, you know, what the patient's going to need, what the family's going to need, those types of things. You know, it, it, it's something that needs to be done because like I said previously, you know, if they don't have that, they may not be able to get a power wheelchair because, you know, nobody's going to sell a chair and have, you know, have to write off five or six, seven thousand dollars. They're just not going to do that. You know, I mean, that's just that's just reality. That's, you know, that's reality. So, uh, you know, patients need to be able to afford those things that they need. And they're only able to afford it with the insurance, Medicare and with a with a supplemental or, or something like that. Patricia, you mentioned the Medigap access in Kentucky. What's the current state of things in Kentucky? Well, uh, it's not through the House of Representatives or legislator or anything, legislation or anything like that. Now, we're working on that diligently. Uh, we have calls every Monday, every other Monday, you know, just depending on people's schedule. I know they're working on that strongly, trying to get it uh, for this year's 
when the legislature meets in uh, January. They're trying to get that on the docket for then. Uh, but who knows? You know, we're having uh, elections in Kentucky in uh, November. So some of the people that are on certain committees in that now may not be on that same committee. You know, so that, that's going to be tough. I mean, if you've had somebody that's wanted to work with you and work with you for a long time, and then, you know, things change, uh, that could be an issue. Hopefully it's not going to be an issue, but it could. I mean, we're working with a, a state representative out of Northern Kentucky who's very, very willing to help us out any way she can. And, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully that's going to work. You know, maybe not this year, if not this year, hopefully next year. It's just tough because, I mean, it's a no-brainer. I mean, if you think about it, it's a no-brainer. But, you know, people that work for different the insurance companies and those type of people, you know, they have a different mindset than what we do. You know, we want to do everything that we can for our patients and their families and take, you know, some of the stress off of them or, you know, more with it, these people. It's, you know, it's just money, money, money. And I think especially with this disease, you have to go past the money, 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 you know, to be able to take care of patients and their families. Well, and we've heard from so many lawmakers, both at the, at the federal level and at the state level, what, you know, big win up in Minnesota, we talked about a little bit earlier this year, but, you know, you hear from lawmakers at all levels talking about how when they hear the story, when they meet the people that, that we're serving, the people from the community, it, it, it moves hearts and then shifts minds. So uh, certainly frustrating when you have to flip the calendar and start all over again uh, with a legislative session, but uh, I trust in the tenacity of the good people of uh, Kentucky to keep pushing forward on this fight. Patricia, thank you so much for your time and insight this week. You're very welcome. And uh, thank you for doing this. I think it's great that we can share this information with, you know, with families and, and, and friends and that type of thing. So people know that we are always keeping our patients and their families in the forefront of everything we do with the ALS Association, because that's what we're all about is taking care of them. I want to thank my guests this week, Kara Nett Hinckley and Patricia Peak. Be sure to check out our show notes for links to information on navigating Medicare, on how to become an advocate, and on the ALS Focus program. If you like this episode, please share with a friend. And while you're at it, rate and review Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a great way for us to connect with more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Race Car. Post-production by Alex Brower. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Supervised by David Hoffman. Thank you for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon. 